I am Bo Ellis Breedlove, and this is the June Bug. Welcome to Episode 5 of Season 2 of The Junebug. Last week, Birdie revealed a traumatic incident at the center of her estranged relationship with her children, the unfortunate death of their father shortly after his return from service. The children were so young when this happened that the memory of his return home was beyond their grasp as they grew up. As the years went on, and Birdie continued to weave the story of him dying during the war, her children were unaware of the truth. After years, when the truth was finally revealed, it drove a divide between Birdie and her only two children that would never be healed. That pain rippled through the rest of Birdie's life as she spent decades trying to come to terms with the loss of not only her husband, but also her beloved Louise and Louis. As Birdie is teaching us, it is often the pain of loss that drives us to make some of the best and worst decisions of our lives. This week on The June Bug, Birdie shares the truth behind her first true love, a love that was forbidden and quickly quashed. Details in the story, such as names and places, have been altered or fictionalized to preserve privacy. Episode 5 11.14 p.m. The Scarab Bracelet Silence had befallen the modest home in Walla Walla. The rains had ceased. The records did not play. 
In the doorway of the master bedroom stood Niccolo, dutifully watching over his aunt as she slumbered. The only disturbance to the otherwise quiet, the constant hum of an oxygen machine at the foot of Bertie's bed. The apparatus itself had been the topic of discussion earlier in the evening, when Bertie voiced her opinion that she wanted to cease its use. Niccolo had advised otherwise, fearful that the lack of oxygen would hasten Bertie's death and deprive her of the final moments she had hoped for and in fact planned. Bertie had been asleep for merely a half hour, but Niccolo was already debating whether or not he should wake her. She had been adamant about not wanting to sleep away her final hours. He decided to leave her at rest for a few minutes longer before resuming the play of studio records and prompting her for more tales from her life. Having decided so, Niccolo took leave from watch and returned to the guest bedroom that had been his home in the preceding weeks. He spied around the room for objects of interest, something he could inquire about, perhaps an artifact that might prompt Bertie to tell another story. Beside the guest bed was positioned an antique sewing machine. It was one of those elegant pieces from the early 1900s, a utilitarian object made to resemble a piece of furniture that might be admired. The machinery was hidden away in an ornately carved oak cabinet that resembled more of a lady's writing desk than an object of labor. The top of the sewing machine was cluttered with small shoeboxes filled with black and white photos alongside a sewing kit and a round porcelain box. The box stood out. It was ornately decorated with gold trim and a hand-painted scene of Rome graced the lid. Nico delicately retrieved the box and peered inside. There was only one item in the precious container. A gold bracelet of semi-precious stones. There were seven stones in total, each carved in intaglio relief depicting scarab beetles. Nicolo held the piece of jewelry in his palm, inspecting it closely. It was old, 
unmarked, no maker's signature, aside from a tiny 14-karat gold marking. Each stone was of different color and clarity. Aside from its perceived age, though, it appeared to be untarnished by wear. As though Bertie had deliberately preserved it in this precious box. The chiming of Bertie's bedside bell disrupted Niccolo from his inspection of the jeweled bracelet. He took the item to her bedside and, without prompting her, simply presented it. Bertie's face illuminated with joy as she took this precious memento in her hand. Looking down upon the item now, the joy washed away from her face as a single tear ran down her cheek. Tell me about this, Niccolo prodded, comforting his aunt by taking her hand in his. Bertie remained silent as the two held hands, the bracelet intertwined between their fingers. This bracelet is the only thing I have from my first love. This and the poem. Bring me the box you found this in, Bertie asked. Niccolo retrieved the box and brought it to his aunt. He had not noticed, but Bertie revealed that a small piece of paper was folded up and delicately taped to the underside of the lid. It was a poem from the very boy who gave Bertie the bracelet. When the Pierce family first took their leave from Walla Walla, they were destined for Salem, Oregon. There, Luella's father, Richard, had been given the opportunity to teach engineering at a school. Luella had not asked about the institution, but had surmised it was likely a place of higher education, perhaps a college or a trade school. Upon arriving at the institution, her assumptions were righted. A spindly iron gate, guarded by an elderly gentleman, marked the driveway. The gate creaked and clunked as he opened it for the new instructor and his family. As their car passed through, Luella peered up at the arch above the driveway. It read, Shimawa Indian Training School. Luella shuddered. 
The dirt drive meandered through a patch of oak trees and towards a lone brick building. Standing in front of the building, a gathering of men similar in age and appearance to Luella's father. Behind the men, a group of young, dark-skinned boys. The boys all had jet black hair that shined in the sun. Their skin was tanned and dark brown. As the family exited their car and was welcomed by the older white men, Luella observed her surroundings and tried to understand what exactly this place was. It was not at all what she anticipated. Beyond the oak trees were barren fields speckled with collections of small cottages and shacks. To the side of the main brick building, a little avenue wound down through another gathering of oak trees. That road was clean and lined with various bushes and landscaping. There was an assortment of mismatched farmhouses tightly packed along the road, each freshly painted. It was a stark contrast to the other residences on the surrounding grounds. Each of these farmhouses had a brick walkway leading from the road, lined with rose bushes. At a distance, Luella spied women sipping tea on the front porches of the houses, served by what appeared to be servants, young girls similar in complexion and appearance to the boys that were now carrying the Pierce family's luggage to one of these well-maintained farmhouses. Shimawa was a re-education camp. The students were all young Native American children taken from their families, ripped away from their tribes, brought here to be assimilated into white American culture. Luella recoiled at the realization and the prospect that she and her family were now a part of this machine of oppression. We want to hear from you. Do you have a story you would like to share? Have you witnessed someone's end-of-life experience? At the June Bug, we want to help educate and prepare our listeners to provide compassionate and loving end-of-life care. We do so by sharing true stories. And if you have a true story that you would like to share, please contact us and let us know. You can visit www.thejunebug.org for more information. Thank you for listening.
As days turned into weeks and weeks into months, Luella and her siblings became uneasily familiar with the routines of their new life. Mary was a young girl, no more than 10, that lived in an attic room of the Pierce family's campus home. She served the family all their meals and took to the daily household tasks. She was their live-in servant. Luella knew, though, that Mary was not her name. La Avina was taken from her mother and her native tribe when she was only four years old. White men came and said that the government had given them dominion over the tribe's children. They were to be saved from their savage ways and given a prosperous life among good white Christians. La Avina could still remember the moment she was taken, the tears in her mother's eyes, the screams as other children were stolen away. What tribe she had been born into, that fact had long been lost, washed away by the years of re-education. In fact, La Avina could not even remember her parents' names, nor a single word of her native tongue. All she had, all of her identity, was what the white men had told her. Luella spent the few private moments she had with La Avina prodding her to try to remember, helping her to recall as much of what had been lost as possible. Luella even found ways of sneaking away school records in an attempt to help her friend find out who she really was. These attempts failed, and Luella never found the answers she sought for La Avina. Shimawa was not suitable for white children, aside from the comfortable living surrounded by subservient natives. The school was well below the education afforded to white children like Luella. So she and her siblings were bused, along with the other faculty's children, to attend private Catholic school 10 miles away. Joining them were the very few Native American boys who were deemed intelligent enough to benefit from a white education. No Native girls were permitted to leave the Shimawa grounds. The Native boys took their seats in the back row of the bus, the white children in the front. Always the rebel, Luella often enjoyed taking her seat 
alongside her less fortunate neighbors, speaking with them, encouraging them not to forget their roots. This was a behavior that was regularly reprimanded. Nonetheless, Luella persisted. Over time, she became particularly close with one boy that was her same age, George. Luella never knew his real name, and George had long forgotten it. George was regarded as something of a prodigy among the students and a favorite pupil of Mr. Pierce. George had found a natural talent in engineering and was quickly taken under Luella's father's wing. He was given special tutoring and eventually allowed to attend the same school as the Pierce children. Soon, Luella realized that she was experiencing her first crush. In fact, she was falling in love with this young man. She admired him, his strength, his intelligence, his unwillingness to let this oppressive system break his spirit. The two would write each other every evening and exchange letters secretly on the bus into town. In the evenings, they would meet in the heavily wooded land far beyond the school fields where children were forced to work. George, George did not like going there, but he did so for Luella. These are bad lands, George would tell her. People, people don't come back from here. Luella did not understand what he meant, but she had seen children being taken back to these woods by men, men like her father at the school. And it was commonplace when she met George amongst the trees that they would come across mounds of freshly turned dirt and debris. But Luella couldn't see the truth that was laid out before her, and George did not want to darken their time together by revealing it. It was on one evening, when the two had ventured together into the woods, that George shared his plan with Luella. He asked her to run away with him. They could make a life together beyond the reach of systemic racism and the pressures of conforming. It was an escape both longed for. George had found his family. They had left the reservation and made a new life in a seaside town in Washington State. He could take Luella there with him, where she would be welcomed. Excitedly, albeit naively, Luella agreed.
hidden under her bed. Luella had a mason jar filled with coins she had collected and stashed away. The evening of George's proposal, Luella returned home and secretively counted her change. It was enough for two bus tickets. Giddily, Luella penned a note to George explaining her plan to slip away with him in the night and catch the 4.30 a.m. bus north to Washington. She reasoned if they met around midnight, that would give them enough time to walk the 10 miles into town and catch the bus. She asked him to meet her in their secret place at midnight the following evening. The next morning, Luella passed George the note on the bus as he passed her a poem he had composed for her. The two were certain their plans were without fault and soon they would be away on a great adventure together. Unbeknownst to either, Mrs. Pierce had discovered the letter earlier that morning. She returned it to Luella's school bag without her noticing, wanting to avoid her daughter finding out. The scheme had been uncovered, and Mr. Pierce had made plans to intervene. That evening, when Luella returned from school, Mrs. Pierce confronted her in her bedroom and demanded that she repent to God for the atrocious sin of loving a dark-skinned boy. Rebellious and sure of her choice, Luella refused. Furious, Mrs. Pierce locked her daughter in the bedroom. Meanwhile, Luella's father patiently waited in the woods with two groundskeepers from the school, awaiting George's midnight rendezvous. As Luella wept into her pillow, she watched the clock on her nightstand, nervously waiting for midnight, knowing George was unaware their plan had been foiled. The clock struck midnight. Luella stifled her tears and listened into the silent night for any sign of a struggle, a fight, or perhaps she hoped George to come to her bedroom window instead. But nothing. Silence. Then... A distant gunshot. George never reappeared after that night, and Mr. and Mrs. Pierce never explained to Luella what took place in the woods. But Luella's father was changed from that day on. 
he wasn't the same man. Two days later, Luella's father brought her a small box. I found this under George's bed. It was a bracelet box, on top of which was scrolled Luella's name. Inside the box, the scarab bracelet. Luella did not know how George had managed to acquire this piece of jewelry, but she cherished it nonetheless. Fearful it may have been stolen, Luella would only wear it at night when she was in bed. During the days, it was returned to its box and hidden under a loose floorboard where no one would find it. The bracelet and the poem were all the mementos she had from her first love. Bertie asked Niccolo to read her the poem as she wiped away tears. Eyes Deep, black, mysterious pools What hast thou hidden in thy depths? A knowledge of the ancients, of the universe and stars, or the deep philosophies of life? Nay, I have not this knowledge, this long-lost wisdom of yore. I have but a wondrous love, a love so pure, so divine, that from the heels of men I have risen to towering heights. Plucked from an abyss of solitude, I have reached the sterling glory, the supreme achievement. Eyes, where are now thy secrets so treasured? In vulgar, unforgiving words, are they divulged? Words that only half express the thoughts behind. The June Bug is produced by Breedlove Creative Enterprises. Original music composed by Bo Ellis Breedlove. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review. You can also help support this podcast and the June Bug Project 
by becoming a supporting member on our Patreon page, www.patreon.com backslash thejunebug. Thank you for listening. New episodes drop every Wednesday. Stay tuned for the next installment of The June Bug.